Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Brigham Young was a rough-hewn craftsman from New York whose impoverished and obscure life was electrified by the Mormon faith. He trudged around the United States and England to gain converts for Mormonism, spoke in spiritual tongues, married more than 50 women, and eventually transformed a barren desert into his vision of the kingdom of God. John Turner, assistant professor of religious studies at George Mason University, is out with a new biography of Brigham Young. And uh, Professor Turner is interested in American culture and politics, fascinated between the, the connections between religion and American national identity and religious freedom and religious establishment. All of these themes, of course, play out in Brigham Young's fascinating life. We'll talk about Brigham Young's legacy for the West and for religion in America. John Turner, my guest. From NPR News in Washington, I'm Paul Brown. President Obama's on his way westward with a focus on the economy and jobs. Scott Stunts with Tri-State Public Radio says the president speaks today in Galesburg, Illinois. Just after being elected in 2005, then-Senator Obama outlined what he saw for the national economy in a commencement address on the campus of Knox College, where he'll be speaking. A post on the White House blog says the speech will concentrate specifically on the role of the middle class. Galesburg, Illinois, is in a county that has an unemployment rate of 7.7 percent. That's just slightly higher than the national average. Galesburg is also home to a sustainable business incubator that houses five startups. For NPR News, I'm Scott Stunts in Galesburg, Illinois. Republican leaders are already criticizing the president's planned series of speeches. House Majority Leader Eric Cantor. Actions speak louder than words. Another presidential speech is not going to help a mom or dad who's out of work, who frankly needs some job training or needs some help to get back up on that ladder of success. But White House spokesman Jay Carney says Republicans are slashing funding for the very types of training programs Cantor describes. A natural gas rig continues to burn in shallow water off the Gulf of Mexico. Eve Tro of member station WWNO reports the rig caught fire late last night after it began leaking natural gas. The natural gas well beneath the Hercules 265 offshore rig had a blowout. 44 people evacuated the rig safely. No injuries, no fire. But federal regulators and the Coast Guard kept watch as the well continued to spill gas. Contractors approached the rig and said it was too dangerous to get closer. Around 11 p.m., the rig ignited. No plan has been announced to extinguish the fire or seal off the leak. The burning rig could change plans for a major Louisiana fishing tournament scheduled to start near the accident later this week. For NPR News, I'm Eve Tro in New Orleans. Egypt's military head is calling on citizens to hold mass protests this week in support of the army and police. The BBC's Quentin, uh, BBC's Quentin Somerville is in Cairo. The head of the army, General al-Sisi, has called on Egyptians to take to the streets this Friday to give him and the armed forces a mandate to confront what he described as violence and terrorism. Although he didn't name them, it's clear he views the threat as coming from the ousted President Morsi's supporters and the Muslim Brotherhood. The provocative statement was immediately denounced by the Brotherhood as a threat. They said they would not call off their demonstrations and would continue to demand President Morsi's reinstatement. The General's call to action was backed immediately by Tamarod, the rebel movement that coordinated the protests in June, which brought millions onto the street and resulted in President Morsi's removal. The BBC's Quentin Somerville in Cairo. Stocks are narrowly mixed. This is NPR News. Support for NPR comes from NPR member stations and from the estate of Joan Crock, whose bequest serves as an enduring investment in the future of public radio. Time now for Utah News. I'm Carrie Bringhurst. Well, the Days of 47 parade is kicking off right now in downtown Salt Lake City, but last night spectators lined up for the early morning for what amounted to basically a huge sleepover last night. For decades, one mother and her daughter from West Valley City have spent the night before they get a front row seat for the parade. We spoke with them yesterday. My name is Heidi Wiesman. I'm her mother, Celeste Wiesman. Um, we're camping out for the Days of 47 parade, and I'm 23 years old, and this will be my 24th parade tomorrow morning. It's the best. You get a front row seat. You move your air mattress to the green line, and you can watch the parade in comfort. 
It's the third largest parade in the country. Uh, it honors our pioneer heritage. We come from pioneer stock, but you could be a pioneer as well in converting to the church and then having it be that you're the pioneer in your family to start the whole thing off. And one woman from Sandy said that the sleepover is a long-standing tradition for her family. We've done this over since I was a little girl. And her favorite part of the urban camping experience? Seeing all the crazies at night. <laughs> we have a big group, so we're, we're taken care of. The Days of 47 parade commemorates the arrival of the Mormon pioneers into the Salt Lake Valley in 1847. Authorities say a man and woman found dead yesterday from gunshot wounds in a Salt Lake City neighborhood appeared to be a murder-suicide. 51-year-old Kevin Eichel and 53-year-old Deborah Eichel died in the shooting. It actually happened Monday afternoon. Officials have not disclosed how the two are related. Rick Wall says officers found the man dead on the street, the woman in a car. Police aren't searching for any suspects and say it appears one of the two people lived in the area. I'm Carrie Bringhurst. Support for Access Utah comes from Crumb Brothers Artisan Bread at 300 South and 300 West in Logan. Now open Monday through Saturday until 2, offering a changing menu of a specialty salad, French breakfast pastries with local seasonal fruits, and lunch sandwiches. Today's broadcast of Access Utah is an encore presentation of a show that was previously recorded in December 2012. However, you can still comment on today's presentation at upraccess at gmail.com. Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Brigham Young was a rough-hewn craftsman from New York whose impoverished and obscure life was electrified by the Mormon faith. He trudged around the United States and England to gain converts from Mormonism, spoke in spiritual tongues, married more than 50 women, and eventually transformed a barren desert into his vision of the kingdom of God. And uh, John Turner has written a new biography, Brigham Young, Pioneer Prophet. John Turner is assistant professor of religious studies at George Mason University. He says his teaching and research center on American culture and politics and that he's fascinated by the connections between religion and American national identity. He also is interested in the relationship between religious freedom and religious establishment in 19th century America. Of course, these themes play out in spades in the life of Brigham Young. John Turner, welcome to the program. Thank you, Tom. I'm happy to be with you. Uh, so you uh, wrote your first book, I believe, on... Uh, American evangelicalism uh, since 1945, and you you write that you were setting out to uh, write a book on Mormonism and conservative politics since 1945. So what what happened? I got interested in the 19th century. I I think I concluded that if I wanted to write something on Mormonism, I really should understand its origins and development. And so I felt the need to to go back to the 19th century and that time period of the history of the church is just so colorful and dramatic that it was easy to get sucked in, which is what happened to me. Hmm. This is fascinating history. We'll, of course, get into it. Uh, this, this theme of religion and American national identity, this continues to this day. Mm -hmm. um, I wonder if you, just to, to, to preface this, if you have any thoughts on this, this ongoing Mormon moment, and uh, just concluded... Uh, uh, presidential campaign, which which some of these themes begin here in the 19th century, continue and uh, seem even stronger today. Well, my first thought on the on the Mormon moment is that yes, there there was an unusual amount of popular and journalistic interest in Mormonism over the past year, in particular, which was really good for any author having a book published on the subject. Yeah, I imagine. Uh, but really, Americans have been fascinated with Mormonism and Joseph Smith since 1830, since the publication of the Book of Mormon and the founding of the Church. It just attracted a lot of controversy and fascination from the start. So even though the Mormon moment is is apparently over in terms of presidential politics, I don't think Americans are going to to lose their fascination with this American religion. Hmm. Uh, one of the reviews of your book, this is the New York Times review, Alex Beam, in a generally positive review of, of the book, this is how he begins, for a young religion, Mormonism seems to have more history than it knows what to do with. 
He goes on to talk about the founding fathers of Mormonism as operatic characters. Uh, I wonder if you could comment on bo- both of those. Uh, more history than knows what to do with and, and operatic characters. Well, the first is certainly true. And one of the things that I do uh, in, in my job is teach uh, the history of religions such as Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. And with all of those religions, you're dealing with, with, with founders and with founding eras for which there is no first-hand or very reliable historical evidence. With Joseph Smith, early Mormonism, and Brigham Young, there are mountains of diaries and minutes and newspaper accounts uh, documenting this history. And I, I think that's what, you know, that's what the review uh, suggests. And of course, much of that evidence is, is contested and, and controversial. So that's absolutely the case. Of course, uh, for those inside Mormonism, uh, this Brigham Young's life and, and those times were, was a very fight for the survival of the people. And uh, outside mm-hmm. it, the, uh, Mormons uh, were a very interesting and dangerous case of, uh, of treason and, uh, and deviance. That, that's certainly true. I mean, Brigham Young, for the 30 years in which he leads the church in what becomes Utah, He's almost constantly at odds uh, with the U.S. government, and you know, obviously there were there were similar clashes between Latter-day Saints and, and other Americans in Missouri and Illinois. So it's it's very much a religion forged and shaped shaped through a cru- crucible of persecution and opposition. Hmm. I wonder if I could, we can be, maybe begin at the end here. Um... Paradoxically, I wonder if I could have you read the first couple of paragraphs from the epilogue. Sure. Let me just find it, and this is, uh, uh, interesting. I'll be happy to do that. And, and by the way, uh, facing the page that I'm going to have you read is a famous picture. We can talk about this as well. Um, it says, In Memoriam Brigham Young, has Brigham Young with all of his wives in, in bed. This is sort of a, a, a popular character of, of Brigham Young in, in the national press, I imagine, today. Absolutely, and um, newspapers and magazines enjoyed satirizing uh, Brigham Young and the Mormons, and that continued right after his death. Uh, and you know, one one magazine had a great series of articles on who should take uh, Brigham Young's place, and they suggested men like Henry Ward Beecher, who was a famous Protestant uh, preacher and philanderer. So they, they were they were merciless toward Brigham Young in life and in death. Uh, where would you like me to start? Perhaps uh, uh, with just, throughout yeah, his just adult be, life. Um, a little see. further down. Uh, no, just uh, just the first two paragraphs of the epilogue. Oh, the first two paragraphs yes. of the epilogue. Gotcha. Okay. On September first, eighteen seventy-seven, a great crush of mourners filed through the Salt Lake City Tabernacle to see Young's body. The next day, after the tabernacle reached its capacity, 2,000 individuals stood outside the building during the funeral. After the hymns, prayers, and eulogies concluded, a large procession brought Young's corpse through the Eagle Gate outside his mansions and eventually to a family cemetery just to the east of Temple Square. At the burial service, a choir sang, O my father, celebrating Young's return to his heavenly, divine parents. Not hesitating to speak ill of the dead or his religion, the Salt Lake Tribune expressed its hope that now the whole decaying structure of Mormonism will rapidly fall to pieces. Young had positioned himself as a bulwark against the tide of political anti-Mormonism and a potential flood of Gentile capital and settlers. Perhaps with Young out of the way, the dam would break, and the Mormons would at the very least abandon polygamy and theocracy, if not the entire substance of their religion. Echoing the language of white Southern Democrats who had regained control of the American South, the Tribune predicted that Utah will be Americanized and politically and socially redeemed. 
of course, that prediction was only partly true, Tom. Yes, yeah. And you go on to say that uh, Brigham Young's successors uh, did make some modifications. Uh, For example, Mm -hmm. polygamy was renounced by the church. Statehood was achieved. Mm -hmm. But uh, you say one of the legacies of Brigham Young is that he created a people. He created a people, yes, absolutely. Uh, You know, the church had been plagued by a great amount of infighting and dissension during its first 15 years. And a couple of things helped Brigham Young create a people. Just the rite of passage of traveling uh, out of the East or from England to Utah was a fundamental experience for many Latter-day Saints. And Brigham Young also simply insisted uh, that the Latter-day Saints operate with a common sense of purpose and, and unity, and he instilled that, that value, that cohesion uh, into the church. You write that uh, one of his phrases, I'm uh, trying to, I wrote it down here, um, but he, he said, I want hard times. Mm-hmm. This was important in, uh, it, I guess that was one of his purposes. He wanted that uh, tightly knit, cohesive community. He did, and he often contrasted uh, what became Utah with California, where people would go to chase riches and try to get rich quickly and just be out for themselves. And that's not what he envisioned uh, for his people. He wanted them to be willing to sacrifice themselves for the church, perhaps to arrive uh, in Utah and be willing to be sent to southern Utah to grow cotton or attempt to produce uh, iron. Uh, he wanted that that dedication and that self-sacrifice. We're going to take a brief break here uh, soon, and when we come back, I want to uh, go with more traditional chronology. And uh, Brigham Young, before he met Joseph Smith and, and embraced Mormonism, and, uh, and then uh, go through the, the chronology a little bit. I'm interested, though, before we go to break... Um, what do you think the, the effect of Brigham Young is today on the, on the Mountain West? Uh, there are some effects that, of course, we, you know, famously we, we see and probably notice if we think about it, the wide streets, the grid pattern, the, mm-hmm. you know, the, all of that. But uh, are there some effects in the legacy of Brigham Young on, on the West? We may not think about it, may not realize. Well, uh, you know, the well, wide streets, you know, brings to mind just his role in the colonization and settlement of the Mountain West, and really the Southwest in in some respects as well. If you drive from uh, Logan uh, down to St. George, especially after you pass uh, Provo now, you know, you regularly encounter a a settlement uh, that he planned. So just the the landscape of settlement, I think, is, is a huge legacy. I think another legacy of Brigham Young that is often neglected is his role as a temple builder. Uh, he dedicated the site for four uh, LDS temples in Utah. Joseph Smith had been more of a one-at-a-time builder of temples. Brigham Young talked about building hundreds, even thousands of temples, and especially in the Mountain West, Mormon temples are an important part of the landscape as well. And I wonder, I sometimes wonder what would have happened if uh, Brigham Young's vision for Deseret had happened, which was, <laughs> this was a side, he, he, in fact, he ruled over a, an area that uh, is approximately the size of France or, or larger. Mm-hmm. Well, the Mormons asked the U.S. government to give them a great amount of territory, I think about one-fifth of what is now the continental United States. And they didn't get that much, but the original Utah Territory included all of Nevada and a large chunk of Colorado and Wyoming as well. So at first, Brigham Young was ruling over a large amount of land. As uh, is written in the, in the blurb for this book, Brigham Young, Pioneer Prophet, uh, Brigham Young was a rough-hewn craftsman from New York whose impoverished and obscure life was electrified by the Mormon faith. We'll get into that part of the story, 
Following break, our guest is John Turner, Assistant Professor of Religious uh, Studies at uh, George Mason University, author of this biography of Brigham Young, and uh, we'll be back with more following the break. Warm summer evenings have arrived, and it's time to head outdoors for parties on the patio. And we've got the perfect soundtrack for your gathering, Jamaican reggae, Congolese sukus, and Caribbean zouk, for dancing or just hanging out. I'm Dan Storper. And I'm Rosalie Howard. Join us for Summer Party, the next Putumayo World Music Hour. The Putumayo World Music Hour airs Fridays at 11 a.m. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Utah Festival Opera and Musical Theater through August 10th in Logan, presenting pirates, ghost ships, curses, and treasure in Wagner's thriller, The Flying Dutchman. Information at utahfestival.org. Today's broadcast of Access Utah is an encore presentation of a show that was previously recorded in December 2012. However, you can still comment on today's presentation at upraccess at gmail.com. On Access Utah today, we're talking about Brigham Young. The new book is Brigham Young, Pioneer Prophet. The author is John Turner, who's Assistant Professor of Religious Studies at George Mason University. Brigham Young, of course, had an outsized effect on all of the American West and uh, on religion in America. John Turner says he's interested in the, that intersection, religious uh, Freedom versus religious establishment, and uh, how religion in America has affected the uh, the national character. These themes, of course, play out in the life of uh, Brigham Young. Brigham Young, a rough-hewn craftsman from New York, whose impoverished and obscure life was electrified by the Mormon faith. I wonder if you could tell us about Brigham Young's early life. Well, it wasn't. I don't think it was a terribly happy existence. His family moved around. Uh, Western New York uh, regularly. His father uh, never achieved any stability or riches. His mother died when he was 14 years old, and his father uh, sent him out of the house a couple of years later to, to find his own way. And he, in many ways, repeated his father's life. He never achieved any earthly success as a young man, moved from town to town, from job to job. And he also did not achieve the spiritual satisfaction that he was looking for. When he was in his early 20s, he had a Methodist uh, conversion and joined a Methodist church. But after a year or two, he felt spiritually despondent. He later said that he didn't feel an assurance of his salvation. And I think it's hard to, to explain exactly why that didn't satisfy him. But he was looking for something else. And when he encountered the Book of Mormon in 1830, uh, he spent a couple of years uh, contemplating the new book and assessing uh, this new religion. And it very much uh, changed the direction of his life once he accepted it. And it, the phrase that you use, I think, is electrified him. It's what, what was it about Mormonism that... Well, it's almost um, literally electrified him in, in a spiritual sense. One of the things that convinced him of Mormonism's truth was seeing a group of uh, elders, missionaries, speak in spiritual tongues. And shortly after his conversion, Brigham Young himself experienced uh, that gift, if you will, uh, he spoke in tongues. And many uh, Mormons had that experience in the 1830s and often described it as if an electric shock uh, were, was passing through them. So I think he was spiritually electrified uh, by this new faith. What do you think was it about his, I don't know, character, his background? He He, he was obscure. He wasn't particularly well-educated. Uh, some of his colleagues were better educated. John Taylor, for example. Mm -hmm. um, what, what was it about Brigham Young that uh, made him, as we see in hindsight, quite well-suited to lead a people on an exodus, build up this, the colonies in the West? 
Well, I think two things caused him to, to rise up through the ranks of the church hierarchy and be in position to do so. The first of those is that spiritual fire. Uh, that was very evident, especially during his first 15 or so years in the church. I think that compensated for his lack of education, his lack of refinement at public speaking. Uh, he had a clear and obvious spiritual fervency. And secondly, he was fiercely devoted to Joseph Smith. Brigham Young, as a young man, had a very strong independent streak. He didn't want to be under anybody else's thumb. But he made an exception uh, for Joseph Smith. He accepted him as his prophet. And even as many of Smith's other followers uh, fell away or rejected him, Brigham Young didn't. And so those two things, I think, establish him as a leader. And then I would say, finally, he very pragmatically assesses the state of the church at the time of Joseph Smith's death and concludes that the people need a much firmer hand than they perhaps had under Joseph Smith. And he provides that, that firmer leadership. And it was very firm, wasn't it? And in fact, you write that after his death, there were some church leaders who made allusions to this, that they thought it was too firm. I was absolutely firm, and he at times bragged about that. He once commented that the church uh, did not experience 10% of the dissent under his leadership as it had under Joseph's. So he very much saw dissent as a real threat to the church, something that had taken uh, Joseph Smith's life and nearly destroyed the church, and he was absolutely determined not to allow that to happen again. I wonder if you could uh, paint for us Brigham Young's personality in a few strokes. It's a sort of unfair question, but uh, it, sometimes when a, people, a person becomes an icon, it's, uh, you know, it's the George Washington syndrome. Sure. It, it is hard to paint in a, in a few strokes because it was incredibly complex. Uh, Brigham Young was a man who might dance past midnight with his people and a day or two later upbraid them for their frivolity. Uh, he was a man who had what I call just a wicked uh, sense of humor, a sharp, coarse, sometimes profane sense of humor. Uh, he also could be aloof when, when he encountered great burdens and difficulties. He sometimes simply liked to withdraw unto himself. Uh, so he's a man who is, is, is hard to pin down in terms of personality, and I think he could be unpredictable and irascible, uh, which was perplexing, I think, uh, both for his followers and, and opponents at times. Uh, he certainly was and remains, to some extent, a, a lightning rod. He was, he was revered by his people, for the most part, I think, and uh, was seen in the, the most majority of, of terms by those outside the church. Absolutely. Uh, for those outside the church, he was typically viewed as a tyrant, as a lecher because of his many marriages. You know, some outsiders who traveled to Utah moderated those those opinions uh, somewhat and developed a, a respect for him. I think within the church, he was he was very much beloved as the people's savior after Joseph Smith's death, and had a great amount of of respect because of the Exodus and because of his early missionary work. I think there were also people within the church that that feared him, particularly some of his. Uh, fellow leaders near the top of the church hierarchy. We do have a uh, caller. Let's uh, bring in uh, Kevin from Smithfield. Uh, Kevin, welcome to the program. Thank you. I, I hope it's not rude if I ask the guest if he's a Freemason. But before I ask my the question I really wanted to ask, is that okay to ask, or would uh, that be better uh, not to? I'm not a Freemason, and it's, I, I'm not offended to be asked. That's fine. 
Um, Salt Lake Tribune on May 4, 2002, documented what appears to be a significant uh, Freemason connection between Mormon uh, Joseph and uh, the Freemasons. I'm wondering if Brigham had a similar Freemason history as Joseph. He didn't have a Freemason history. He wasn't a Freemason until he joined the Lodge in Nauvoo, which Joseph Smith established in the early 1840s. I don't think Freemasonry was especially important to Brigham Young. I think he understood it, as some other Mormon men did, as a stepping stone to something else. And I think that's the way Joseph Smith viewed it. I don't think he attempted to hide the fact that uh, Freemasonry had influenced his thought, especially as he thought about developing new rituals. Yes, that's the main, that's the connection is, is my understanding too. And and just for listeners, um, inter- if they are interested, interested, it's interesting that you mentioned the Nauvoo, Illinois um, uh, temple or wh- whatever you call it, because it was rebuilt, I su- I'm understanding, in 2002. And the Freemason connection was the square and the compass, which was on top of the original one. And they omitted that to apparently, for lack of a better term, to hide the connection between Freemasonry and the LDS faith. My knowledge of these things mostly ends after 1877 and Brigham Young's death. Uh, but no, that, that early connection is, is, is interesting. And I think Joseph Smith, yeah, I think his view is simply he was happy to draw on what he considered truth wherever he found it. And, you know, his followers would have been aware of such connections in in the 1840s. Well, it's interesting that you use that word truth because he took an oath as a Freemason, which which he betrayed, is my understanding, and that's what led to his death. Those were Freemasons in the gang that killed uh, Joseph for lying about his oath to not reveal the uh, practices of Freemasonry, which he brought into the LDS faith. Well, there are a lot of theories about about the reasons behind Joseph's murder. I tend to be more persuaded by, you know, that it was primarily motivated by political uh, anti-Mormonism, but I haven't I haven't fully investigated it. Thanks, Kevin. Uh, Michael Hoffman might be a good source to look at. Thanks for your time. Yeah, thanks, Kevin. Uh, appreciate your call. We're talking with John Turner, author of a new biography of Brigham Young called Brigham Young, Pioneer Prophet. And let's go to our next caller, Scott, calling from Hiram. Welcome to the program, Scott. Thank you. Thank you for taking my call. Uh, I had a question uh, from Mr. Turner. We had just finished, uh, we went and saw the movie Lincoln uh, last week, and I was. my question had to do with Brigham Young and his relationship with uh, Stephen Douglas uh, and Abraham Lincoln and also the concept of state sovereignty. It seemed like he was very much pro-state sovereignty, and then during the course of the Civil War, uh, tended to break with Abraham Lincoln and seemed to be more of an advocate of the Southern cause. And just interested in your thoughts. Well, uh, thank you, Scott. Those are great questions, and I think it's a fascinating uh, chapter uh, in Utah history. Uh, Brigham Young very much was a proponent of states' rights. Part of his problem was he didn't have a state. He only had a territory. And so that meant that Utah was um, ultimately governed by by the U.S. government, and that has much to do with explaining uh, conflicts between uh, Utah and the U.S. government in the the 50s, 60s, and 70s. In terms of the Civil War, uh, certainly Brigham Young saw it as providing Utah with relief from the threat of federal intervention. So early during the war, uh, he's quite clear he doesn't want Utah mixed up in the secession movement. Um, and he's not pro-slavery in the sense of wanting, to, wanting Utah to be a slave society like the South. Uh, but he does cheer early Southern victories, privately, not publicly. 
because they mean that the union's not going to be able to turn its attention to Utah again. I think later in the war, when the casualties have, have mounted to simply monstrous uh, levels, um, he doesn't talk that way uh, as much anymore. Thank you for the for the call, Scott. Appreciate okay, that. Thank you very much. Uh, before we go to our next caller, we do have another another caller. I want to follow up. Uh, this was an interesting uh, sort of a, a contradiction. The especially after the Civil War, uh, the, the U.S. government from the from their side, uh, which had been at least uh, you know accepting of of states' uh, sovereignty, and I guess maybe because of the the way the Civil War came out. Uh, definitely wanted to assert their control over the West, and that there began a conflict with, with Brigham yes. Young and the Mormons. And there were some uh, Republicans, some radical Republicans in particular, who wanted to apply the same tools of Reconstruction to Utah in particular as were being applied to the American South. Let's go to our next caller, Len in Logan. Len, uh, thanks for calling. Thank you. Um, I'd simply like to ask the guest what Brigham Young of Orderville and other kinds of social experiments would make of the current, oh, say, the mall at City Creek um, and the emphasis on wealth embedded in it. Well, that's, that's a great question, Len. Um, I think you'd be very surprised at recent developments. I think you know, ultimately, his concern um, was to promote self-sufficiency and keep Mormon wealth out of the hands of Gentiles. Um, so I don't know all of the ins and outs of the uh, City Creek development, but I think if he thought it was going to enrich uh, Latter-day Saints at the expense of Gentiles, he would be in favor of it. Uh, you're right, though. I mean, he certainly promoted communitarian um, economic projects, which you mentioned Orderville. That's probably among the you know one of, one of the rare times in which you know a group of people thoroughly embraced his vision. I think primarily he wanted to promote self-sufficient self-sufficiency and kind of economic autarky, almost keeping. Uh, keeping Utah's wealth in the hands of the church himself and its people and out of the hands of outside capitalists and bankers. Thanks, Len. Thank you. Appreciate your question. Talking about Brigham Young, whose legacy still is uh, reverberating throughout the western United States and, of course, in religion in America. Brigham Young, Pioneer Prophet, is the book. It's a new biography by John Turner who's Assistant Professor of Religious Studies at George Mason University. Uh, we're going to take a brief uh, break in just a couple of minutes. Uh, I wonder if you could uh, talk uh, briefly about uh, Brigham Young's efforts, and, and I think successful efforts, to keep this religion unique. A new new strain of religion, new sort of religious DNA. It, uh, it could have... Uh, kind of uh, evolved more back toward Protestantism, but it did not, in, in part because of Brigham Young. Yeah, I think the, the most important aspect of that in terms of Brigham Young's leadership is um, his emphasis upon uh, temple ordinances. After Joseph Smith's death, he tells the people that he is he and the Twelve Apostles can best carry out Joseph's legacy and vision, because they have the keys, they have the authority uh, to lead the people through these sacred ordinances. And he insists that the Latter-day Saints at least try to stay in Nauvoo, finish the temple uh, before they have to leave. And ultimately, he leads thousands of people through ordinances in Nauvoo. And other competitors uh, who might have led the church after Joseph's death, were not as closely connected to that sort of ritual development. And I think that remains a, a fundamental difference between Mormonism and American Protestantism. And I attribute 
a lot of that to, to Brigham Young's leadership after Joseph's death. And this was one of the reasons why it was uh, Mormonism was so noted, so hated, seen as such a, a deviance. Well, it was. I mean, I, some and and sometimes that had to do with with other rituals. I think you know a lot of Americans saw something sinister in the endowment ceremony, and they found uh, baptism for the dead, you know, an oddity. And then, of course, plural marriage was something that engendered a tremendous amount of opposition. And that was another part of Joseph's legacy that, that Brigham Young uh, accepted and promoted after his death. We're going to take a brief break. When we come back, uh, I'm going to have uh, our guests to talk a little bit about uh, politics, the the political and uh, even uh, verging on, on war that existed uh, between Brigham Young, the, uh, the Great Basin Kingdom, and the federal government. Some of those uh, themes reverberate today, and some of those in reverse. It's very interesting. We'll talk about that when we come back from the break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the Utah Shakespeare Festival, presenting Shakespeare's Richard II with seven other productions through October 2013 in Cedar City. For information, visit www.bard.org. Support for UPR also comes from the free Oyster Ridge Music Festival, July 26th through 28th in Kemmerer, Wyoming. Thirteen bands will perform, including the White Buffalo, Holy Ghost Tent Revival, and Hot Day at the Zoo. Information at OysterRidgeMusicFestival.com. Coming up on the next Bluegrass Breakdown, we'll be heading back to a month so bluegrassically auspicious that it demands its own entire show. Among other things, Scotty Stoneman passes away, and the Osborne Brothers become the first bluegrass band to perform inside the White House. I'm Dave Higgs, and we'll be spotlighting March 1973 on the next Bluegrass Breakdown. Today's broadcast of Access Utah is an encore presentation of a show that was previously recorded in December 2012. However, you can still comment on today's presentation at upraccess at gmail.com. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Our subject is Brigham Young, the second president of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Brigham Young, Pioneer Prophet, is the title of a new biography from John Turner, who's Assistant Professor of Religious Studies at George Mason University. Uh, very interested about this uh, in this conflict uh, between what essentially was a Great Basin Kingdom, to use the title of Leonard Arrington's book, uh, in the middle of, or you know, on, on the edge of a, a democracy. Uh, from the Mormons' point of view, they had been persecuted and they had left the United States to try to find some peace, and Brigham Young's very defensive of, of, of any um, attacks there. I could see from the, the federal point of view, uh, this is part of America now, and, and we need to assert some sovereignty. I wonder if you could uh, outline uh, some, some of that. Uh, it was an ongoing battle, and sometimes really was a battle, for decades. It was, and it was, it was almost a bloody, very bloody war at one point. I think Brigham Young's perspective was that once his people had been expelled from Illinois and the U.S. government hadn't protected them, they had the right to govern themselves. And he also saw that as a basic aspect of republicanism, that people have the right to self-government. In his mind, the Mormon people, by choosing baptism, by choosing his leadership, by traveling west under his leadership, they had chosen to be governed uh, by the priesthood. And he thought that uh, the priesthood uh, should have the right to control affairs in Utah. Of course, under the territorial system, uh, the U.S. government had the right to appoint officers uh, for Utah. Congress, or President uh, Fillmore, initially appoints Brigham Young as Utah's governor. This is before the public uh, announcement of polygamy. Uh, there's still some sympathy for the Mormons because of their expulsion from Illinois. And so he chooses Brigham Young. But he also chooses uh, non-Mormon judges and other officials for the territory. And as the years pass, there are constant, con constant conflicts between those non-Mormon 
judges and officials and Brigham Young. And he tends to make their time in Utah rather uncomfortable. And many of them go back to Washington with stories of monarchy and polygamy. And for some years, not, there's no response. And then in 1857, uh, President James Buchanan decides to replace Brigham Young with a non-Mormon governor. He's essentially concluded that Brigham Young is not loyal uh, to the U.S. government. And he's worried the Mormons will resist. And so he sends an army to accompany the new governor to Utah. Brigham Young, for a time, um, decides to resist militarily. And there's a standoff uh, for half a year. Hmm. Um, and uh, this continues for for years and, and, and for decades. And it was not... Uh, wasn't really resolved until after Brigham Young's death. No, certainly not not fully resolved until the abandonment of uh, polygamy uh, beginning in 1890. And I would say throughout Brigham Young's lifetime, especially his last 15 years, there's a lot of talk on the part of uh, American politicians about the need to stamp out polygamy. But I think the crux of the conflict during those years was one of political control. You know, who is going to control Utah's courts and uh, who is going to control the territory's politics? And I, I think questions of theocracy were probably more fundamental to the conflict than polygamy. Did Brigham Young move at all in his thinking on, on these issues over, over the course of his life? I don't think he moved in his thinking, but over the last decade of his life, he comes to grips with the fact that there are going to be more non-Mormons in the territory and that the U.S. government is asserting some control. He tries to stave off as much of that as he can, but he abandons some of the, the bellicose uh, rhetoric that he used back in the 1850s. And so he does, he does adapt. He he becomes a bit shrewder, I think, in his dealings with the U.S. government toward the end of his life. By the way, was was this his views on these matters? Were they generally shared by others in the uh, leadership hierarchy, or, uh, or or was or were there some dissenters? I don't think he, you know, I don't think he experienced a tremendous amount of dissent in terms of his political leadership. Uh, one of your callers brought up his economic leadership, and there was more pushback against against that. Um, certainly, there 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 were some who questioned his tight control of the territory's politics, but but not many. And I think a lot of Latter Day Saints shared his sense of the U.S. government as a threat. And so, when soldiers, for instance, come to Utah, they are potentially um, another mob, uh, as the saints had experienced in the East. And bringing this forward, um, I'm struck by some reversals of, of, of some of these uh, positions uh, among uh, church members today. For example, um, into the 20th century, you find many church members embracing the federal government, uh, staunch conservatives, very much a patriotic feel. Uh, very patriotic. And it certainly changes. Not long after Utah statehood, a lot of uh, Mormons fight in the Spanish-American War and then World War One, And, you know, more, more, you know, even under Brigham Young, there, there was a complex relationship to the nation and uh, the its heritage. They they see the United States not as something bad, but uh, as as a nation that has departed from its its founding. So there's there's a reverence for the U.S. Constitution and the founding of the Republic, and I think many Mormons, uh, once the conflict with the U.S. government ends, are are easily able to embrace patriotism because of, of, of those views as well. 
And in terms of religious acceptance, uh, I'm struck by, you write that one of uh, Brigham Young's maxims was mind your own business. Mm-hmm. His prescription for both the saints and the Gentiles, and contrasting that with today where the uh, church is actively reaching out seeking more acceptance. Yeah, I don't think Brigham Young had had any real desire for the approval of outsiders. I mean, he knew that uh, American Protestants were were going to have a very negative view of of Mormonism, and he wasn't engaged in any sort of PR efforts uh, to change that. And nowadays, as you know, the the LDS Church is is much more savvy in such matters. Yeah, maybe that's the the positive way to put it, savvy. Um, uh, I wonder um, if you could talk a little bit about what you call the excesses of the 1850s. These, I, I think you you view uh, some of these things as some mis, uh, missteps by Brigham Young. Definitely. I think he, he misread uh, the U.S. government, didn't have a, a good understanding of Washington politics. And so he does many inflammatory things and says makes many inflammatory statements, I think with the sense that there isn't going to be any response. And I think that was a enormous political error. I think in terms of his leadership of the church, there was there was a lot of violent rhetoric, threats of violence, and also some incidents of violence which he approved of in the territory. And I think that created, you know, a, a tense, negative, and sometimes violent climate in the territory. Do you think Brigham Young had a direct involvement in any way with the Mountain Meadows Massacre? I don't think he had a direct involvement in terms of ordering it, because I don't see credible evidence suggesting that he did so. I think his policies, and this takes place while that army is marching to Utah in 1857, his policy of talking about the fact that he will no longer stop Indians from attacking wagon trains, his preparing a military defense against the U.S. Army, uh, lots of negative talk about Gentiles. I think those sorts of things created a climate and atmosphere in which the massacre was conceivable, but I don't see him as having ordered it. Just have a couple minutes left here. Uh, what do you think, with a few bullet points, what is the legacy of Brigham Young? I think uh, two things that I briefly mentioned earlier. In terms of the church, I think it's the ethic of self-sufficiency, obedience, and unity. I think that still very much shapes Mormonism today. I think his uh, temple building and continuation of Joseph Smith's ordinances, I think those are also uh, a big part of his legacy. I think the opposition to the U.S. government uh, also, this has faded a great amount, but did create a lasting sense of opposition and and persecution in terms of the way Mormons viewed the rest of the country. Hmm. Very interesting new biography. Brigham Young, Pioneer Prophet. John Turner is the author. He's Assistant Professor of Religious Studies at George Mason University. Uh, Very interesting read, and it's out and available now. Brigham Young, Pioneer Prophet. John Turner, pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you, Tom. And for uh, producer Shalane Smith-Needham, I'm Tom Williams. Thanks for listening today. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the Utah Festival Opera and Musical Theater through August 10th in Logan with Fiddler on the Roof, one of the longest-running shows on Broadway and the winner of nine Tony Awards, starring Michael Ballum. Information at utahfestival.org. Access Utah is a production of Utah Public Radio. You can listen to this episode or previous episodes of Access Utah anytime at upr.org, where you can find a link to subscribe to our podcast. This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1 89.5 Logan, KUSK HD1 88.5 Vernal, KUSL HD1 89.3 Richfield, KUST HD1 88.7 Moab, and KUSU FM HD1 91.5 Logan.
The time is now 10 o'clock. Welcome to the Beehive Archive, a two-minute look at some of the most pivotal and peculiar events in Utah's history. I'm Megan Van Frank. This week, learn about the Utah artists considered to be among the top women American artists, teacher, dancer, rancher, and tenacious painter, Minerva Teichert. First, this. The Beehive Archive is brought to you on Utah Public Radio by the Utah Humanities Council with support from a We the People grant from the National Endowment for the Humanities and the Lawrence T. and Janet T. D. Foundation. Artist Minerva Kolhep Teichert was born in North Ogden, Utah in 1888. Throughout her life, she captured on canvas the great Mormon pioneer story and the story of the American West. Minerva grew up in a large family on a remote ranch in Idaho. Her mother was the daughter of one of Brigham Young's bodyguards, and her father had been disowned by his prominent family when he joined the LDS Church. The religious and pioneer stories told by her parents inspired Minerva's art all her life. Though women artists were not common in the West during this time, there is no doubt that the young Minerva got an early start to her career. When she was four years old, her mother gave her a set of watercolors, and from then on, Minerva considered herself an artist. She carried sketch pad and charcoal with her constantly, a practice she maintained into adulthood. As a young woman, Minerva taught school to save money to attend the Art Institute of Chicago and was the first woman to be sent for art lessons with the official blessing of the LDS Church. She later received a scholarship to study at the Art Students League in New York City, one of the most important art centers in the world. To pay her way, she sketched cadavers for medical schools, illustrated children's books, painted portraits, and performed rope tricks and Indian dances on the New York stage. Minerva turned down opportunities to further her career in the East and instead returned home to paint the history of the Mormon people. She married cowboy Herman Teichert and with him ran their ranch and raised their five children. Somehow, she also painted. Her studio was their living room, which was too small for her large works, so she folded her murals as she painted and to get the correct perspective, viewed her canvases through the wrong end of a pair of binoculars. Her children were sent to bed at 8 o'clock each night so she could paint until midnight. Teichert produced prolifically, painting more pioneer and Indian subjects than any other Utah artist. Women and Western themes feature prominently in her work, and she is noted for a series of murals depicting the scenes from the Book of Mormon. Her aim was to produce works of art that would motivate people, in her words, to build Zion. She created more than 60 murals that adorn public places in Utah, and her work is in museum collections throughout the state. Minerva Teichert died in 1976 in Provo, Utah. Content for this episode of the Beehive Archive was provided by the Springville Museum of Art. Sources and past episode of the Beehive Archive may be found at utahumanities.org. For the Beehive Archive, a production of the Utah Humanities Council, I'm Megan Van Frank. It's municipal election time, and candidates for Logan mayor will hold a debate this Thursday. Utah Public Radio and the Herald Journal invite you to participate in the debate, moderated by UPR's Matt Jensen, beginning at 7 p.m. at the Whittier Center on 3rd North and 4th East in Logan. To submit your question to be asked during the debate, go to the Herald Journal or UPR website. Here's your opportunity to participate in the process, Thursday at the Whittier Center in Logan. Support comes from the Utah Festival Opera and Musical Theater through August 10th in Logan with Fiddler on the Roof, one of the longest-running shows on Broadway and winner of nine Tony Awards, starring Michael Ballam. Information at utahfestival.org. And from... The Utah Shakespeare Festival, presenting Shakespeare's Richard II with seven other productions through October in Cedar City. Details at bard.org. On this Thursday's The Zesty Garden, author Amy Stewart uncovers more than 100 of our worst insect enemies in her book Wicked Bugs, The Louse That Conquered Napoleon's Army, and Other Diabolical Insects. It's a mixture of history, science, murder, and intrigue that begins but doesn't end in our own backyards. You'll also hear a tribute to Iris from Helen Cannon in Petals and Prose. The new issue extension horticulture agent Jerry Goodspeed discourages you from growing bishop's weed in Wait, Wait, Don't Plant That. It's The Zesty Garden this Thursday at 10 a.m. on Utah Public Radio. My name is Martha Hamm, and I'm sitting with Michelle Thomas. It's actually Irma Michelle Thomas, named for my mother, Irma, and Martha is my friend. And you're my friend. <laughs>
Utah Public Radio presents StoryCorps. Tune in beginning July 11th for stories from everyday people. StoryCorps, preserving the stories of our lives. Heard weekly here on Utah Public Radio. For details, go online to upr.org. And be sure and tune in tomorrow during Access Utah for our next edition of StoryCorps Utah, heard only on Utah Public Radio. For more information, again, go to our website at upr.org. Thanks for joining us on this Pioneer Day holiday. You're listening to Utah Public Radio, a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. From Public Radio International, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. As the world warms and the ice melts, civilization will face some dramatic changes in the level of the oceans. On the long term, and we're really talking about millennia here, we expect sea level rise of two meters for each degree of global warming that we cause. How to prepare for seas at least 15 feet higher. Also, comparing the relative safety of pipelines and trains to transport oil. And why some advocates say we have to get over the aversion to insects and eat them. Look at the future, look at what's coming our way. It's really kind of terrifying. Nine billion plus people in 2050, which is not that many years away. And none of the experts have explained where all that food is gonna come from. Grasshopper snacks and Katie did crisps? We'll have those stories and more this week on Living on Earth. Stick around.